Welcome to the Property Renovation Podcast, giving you the best tips on achieving the perfect renovation whilst making it as fun, safe, and as cost-effective as possible by hearing from experts in the industry and people that have been through the experience themselves. Let me introduce your host, four times award winner of world-leading interior design website, House, and over 16 years in the industry, renovating just over 250 properties, James Woodham. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Property Renovation Podcast. My name is Juliet, and in this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Clement, who is one half of the team behind my Fix It Up Life. Mark and his wife, Teresa, are a DIY power duo. They have a blog and a YouTube channel where they share all of their DIY and design tips. And in this episode, we get to hear from Mark about how he got into the industry and became a self-taught carpenter. Also, just in time for all of our spring DIY projects, we get to hear from him about the top tools he recommends investing in. After the show, please let us know what you think or if you have any questions. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash the Property Renovation Podcast. All right, everyone. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks. everyone. My name is Juliet. I am co-host of the Property Renovation Podcast, and I'm super excited to introduce Mark Clement today. He is half of the brain of my Fix It Up life, and I'm going to let him introduce himself because he is a man that wears many hats. So he will tell you about all those different hats. Lots of hats, half a brain. You pretty much got me right there. <laughs> Too much headgear, not enough. Head? <laughs> not enough head. <laughs> So what's, um, what's the primary hat you're wearing these days? You know, it, it, there isn't one. Okay. I, uh, I'm sort of like a, a, a business media DIY contracting frog jumping from lily pad to lily pad of projects. I just got back from looking at a uh, 1950s era house Ooh. where the homeowners wanted a more open floor plan. So I kind of had to engineer that and give them a price or tell them when I would give them a price and basically figure it out though from, Hey, how you doing? You've never seen this before right. to every single detail to make sure it could be done. So I had to engineer the whole thing in my head. Yeah. So today I'm a contractor. Today you are. An hour ago. Now I'm on a podcast with you. Yes. Welcome to the entrepreneur life. <laughs> True. So um, we've been speaking for a little bit and you actually have a, I guess, a unique and also I'm guessing in some ways to all of our listeners, maybe not an altogether too unique story of how you entered into being a carpenter and working with your hands. And so how did all of that come about for you? Well, it came about backwards because in, in the end, it took me till I was in my 30s to realize that this is what I wanted to do for a living. I kept trying everything but this. I went to college. I, got, I tried to get the job in the office because I went to college because that's what you do. You don't just become some tool pouch wearing guy. But it kept happening. I kept falling back on the thing that was drawing me towards it. And there was all this cognitive dissonance for so long. I didn't really wrap my head around it until one day it was like, wait a minute, 
I like this and I'm making money and not a lot, but let, okay, I'll try this. So you feel like it chose you, the universe said, Mark, you will do this. Yes, I, <laughs> I do. Um, and I kept finding unique satisfactions from it on a personal level. And, and I don't want to go too far inside baseball with the craftsmanship. Um, I do it for money. You know, like we all do. We all go to work. School teachers don't go to school for the children. Right. They go to school to buy food. It just so happens they like children and that's a bonus. Right. You know, there's none of this whole altruism, feel your own peace kind of stuff. That's crap. But I do like it. I right. work my guts out at it. I forget right. why I'm saying all this. <laughs> You're saying that it's a very pleasant way to put food on the table and that we love children. Right. That's sure. What you said. <laughs> no, but I found as a young carpenter teaching myself how to do this, just vastly in over my head, just vastly. I knew enough to be dangerous, like every other DIYer on planet Earth. Exactly. You know, hey, I can sort of figure out how to maybe rehang that door. Oh, my God, this is hard. <laughs> Why won't it close? What invisible force has woken up and picked my name out of the hat and said, I'm going to ruin your day. <laughs> so, I, you know, I finally, oh, the hinge is a little off. I, maybe I'll put a piece of cereal box behind the hinge because when a door doesn't, where, where are my hands on your camera? When, when a door doesn't quite close, it's called hinge bound. And that's because the hinge isn't quite at the proper angle for the door to close freely. So I kept solving all these problems every carpenter and DIYer solves. Then I started to notice um, uh, a more metaphysical connection to my growing up and maturing as a, as a husband, as a father, and a man. Um, positive thinking was one that came out of it. I didn't realize I was a terrible cynic. Oh, really? One day... I realized I was, and it was all because I couldn't get a piece of wood where I wanted it to go. The small moments reveal large things to us, don't they? I like the way you put that. Yeah. If you're looking, if you're open to it, and I don't want to be all hikey climby, you just want to, I think it's important in life to always pursue progress. Yes. Pursue equilibrium. Knowing full well you're not going to get it, but get moments yes. of it, wisps of it, but it's going to be chaos all around you. It's in the pursuit of it that I think we find growth. And when you stop and you just pursue off, you know, as your main thing, you stop growing, you stop learning, you stop seeing what the world is trying to show you. Definitely. And I agree with you. I don't think we should get too um, woo-woo here. <laughs> Nice. Just two quick things. <laughs> no, I agree too. Wait, I'm going to have to look that up though. Uh, yeah, two quick things came to mind when you were talking. And one is um, that search for that both progress and equilibrium. And I remember, God, God bless whatever sixth grade biology teacher I had when you learned that one of the hallmarks of life on earth in general is homeostasis, that every, organiza every organism on earth seeks homeostasis, which is, you know, that certain set of conditions that 
allow that organism to live like us. You know, we'd like to keep our bodies at a certain temperature, whatever. But of course, to remain at that equilibrium, close state, it takes a lot of energy. And the other thing, I think, um, just speaking to progress, and I think it's probably a psychological reason of why we all do this and why we work so hard to improve our lives, to improve our homes, to improve, like, and hopefully in pursuit of, like, improving our homes, we improve the entire arena around which we relate to those that we love the most is, I think one of my philosophy professors said it best and they said that um, hope is freedom in relationship to our future. And so it's, it's the freedom to be able to create this future that you envision that you want to kind of step into. So, so getting enough of the woo-woo out of the way. I'm going to go and need to rent an excavator to get to the bottom of that hole. Exactly. Wow. If you ever reach the bottom, let me know. <laughs> that is a rabbit hole for sure. I think that's great, though. It's way too powerful for me to unpack right now. That's Hope why this is recorded. Freedom to, to something? Hope is freedom in relationship to our future. Oh, that's awesome. Isn't it? That's kind of one of my go-to sayings. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, the day gets dark, you know, and I don't want to be too English majory, but it does. It does for everybody. And if you're not, if you're not taking a crack at some of the big thoughts, if you just, if I call it, I call it the apotheosis of the mundane. Mm, I love that word, apotheosis. Oh, it's a good word. Yes. I was like, in the word category. And uh, if you apotheosize or make godlike the mundane, the, the silly, the easily solved, you're just taking most of your mind and putting it in your intellectual attic. Correct. And I think doing DIY and unpacking how a house works, it, well, it does a couple things. There, there's, I could go on 30 tangents here right now. Let's see, layer one is that it forces you to think mechanically. So you have to think about a problem. So there's a door behind you. So I'll keep going to the door. Um, uh, it doesn't hang right either. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say you wanted to put a new door in there. You have to, in order to do it with any sense of purpose and progress, you're going to have to stand there and look at it in silence and, and strip it down in your mind. Okay. I'm going to take the trim off. The trim is caulk to the wall. If I take the trim off without cutting the caulk, with a utility knife, I'm going to tear the paint off. If I don't have a bar and I put something behind it, I might crack the plaster. That looks like plaster to me back there. It is. And so on and so on and so on until you start revealing all the parts of the door. That's good brain work. That's good for the noggin to do that. It's better than watching TV in terms of mental exercise. It does. Um, but there's a second layer to it, too, that I experienced while working with a friend of mine. We did a video and it's on, it's on the My Fix It Up Life YouTube channel. I hope if you're all listening, you'll subscribe and follow. I'm counting. <laughs> um, and we did this video about how to make over his shed. He had this sorry shed. It was silly. 
So we did a couple things, gave it some color, did a little landscaping and he's not a DIY guy. Mm. Um, but he helped me because I was doing his shed and we were doing the video. So he's got the wheelbarrow full of dirt and he, I teach him how to edge a garden bed and we'll trim the hedges like this instead of like whatever he was doing and so on and so on and so on. Well, as his momentum picked up, every next wheelbarrow started to go, he's whatever, 35 years old. Um, he said something along the lines of, wait a minute, this, this isn't trimming the hedges when I'm 12 and my dad is making me. This is my, my house. Like, this is cool. And it was genuine. He didn't have to say it. The camera wasn't on him. None of that. And this thought popped into my head primordial DIY. We're built to live inside. We're not animals. I mean, we are, but we're not like a bear. Bear doesn't, it doesn't matter if a bear or a dog, you know, an elephant has a house. We'll die. Yeah. And I think without going too far down the evolutionary biology road, even though I'm going all the way down it. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think that doing stuff around your house is tapping into not just, oh, it'll be pretty HGTV. Oh my God, my makeover. Oh, look, I got all this stuff for free. Of course you're happy. Of course you're happy. You just got a new deck for free. It doesn't, but if you do it yourself, you tap into that very, that very mitochondrial, whatever DNA talk is. I mean, I think might've made that word. Um, the mitochondria of survival of shelter. And you don't get that watching TV. I buy that. And I think like so many jobs today, granted, not all jobs and granted the construction industry is huge. And there's Thousands of people outside my window right now, downtown Chicago, building high rises, homes, offices, everything. Yeah. But so the idea of working with our hands is so far removed from so many people that we forget about the satisfaction of building something. And at the end of the day or end of whatever period of time being like, that did not exist before. And now it only exists because of me and because of the sweat I put into that. It's, it really is incredible. Well, if you think about it, and this is not the conversation I plan to have for sure, <laughs> but I'm loving it. If you think about it in historical terms, we've only been in industrial world for not very long. Yes, uh, mid-1800s, right? It's, industrial I think revolution. the Industrial Revolution officially started in, the, let's say, the mid-1800s with locomotives in Britain yeah. and machines and factories and stuff like that. How many grandparents away from today is that? For me, that would be my mother, her father. His father was alive at the beginning of the right. Industrial Revolution. Yeah. That's not that long. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. And prior to the Industrial Revolution, we made it all ourselves. They were hand tools. You sanded a floor, and there's a great there's a great painting by Matisse. I think it's by Matisse of 
the uh, one of the first impressionists of Gustav Kaibot. What's that? Gustav Kaibot. Who's that? He is one of the first impressionists. Um, oh crap! The book is over there in my office, but he, it's the where you see men and then they have they're shirtless and they're bent over and they are scraping the, the floor scrapers. That's yes. exactly it. Yes, that's it. I love that painting. There's a first painting of common people working. Is it really? Pretty sure. Wow. The world's best art critic on planet Earth, a guy named Artie Wal- uh, Valdemar Janicek. If you have Amazon Prime, look him up. The best art shows. He, he's awesome. He's got so much charisma. I don't even know what he's talking about. But his voice is so great, I just listen and stuff sort of sings. <laughs> like, that was convincing. <laughs> but the reason I bring that up, I've got two reasons actually to bring that up. One, so they're refinishing that floor. Today, we have something we plug in, big old floor sander. Those guys are out there with a hand, hand scrapers pulling along the grain of a tongue and groove floor to remove the finish, one. Two, it's, it's called burnishing. But essentially, they're t- running that blade across the wood to expose fresh wood grain. And that job today would take one, let's just say it's one room in that painting. You rent the stuff at Home Depot and kind of you do it your couple hours. Take those guys a week to do that. Several guys. Also, no matter what you see on television, the way to remove paint, like from that door you found in the trash, it's not a sander. It's not a power tool. I actually brought one with me. Where's the camera? There it is. It's this. And there are a couple kinds. One's just like that painting that um, you saw. It's just a handle with blade on it. But this one is called... Sorry, I'm doing all this off camera. It's okay. For those you can't see, it's basically um, a standard size handle, and he just attached a scraper to the end. Scraper. It's a scraper blade. A scraper blade. So that or that, so you can get inside the contours of like that door behind you, for example. Right, because behind me is um, a door with what we call field and raised panels. And so there is a part of the door profile, the molding that goes back in relief and then comes back up to be level with the, not quite level, but the inside of the panel is again raised. Yeah. So he's talking about getting in the contours of the door. So that's another blade right there. Ah, so we've seen more of a triangular Braid, blade, and that is a circular one. Ooh, with a sharp, like it's shaped like a teardrop. Yeah, yeah. And the reason, the reason I'm bringing this up is I have tried everything to rescue the old doors. I've tried burning it, the paint off. I've tried chemical strippers. Um, and for people listening to this podcast who might be doing old house stuff, you want to bring the doors back. The most effective way I've tried and had success doing it is that old school way 
Right. Because, not because I'm some fan of impressionist art, which I don't even barely know what it is, but because the blades break the paint physically. Mm. The minute you hit it with a sander, it melts the paint, it liquefies it, and it ruins the sanding pads, it ruins the sanding all of that. That makes so much sense because actually the computer is sitting on a table with that had old like industrial strength outdoor paint latex on it, like three layers because it's um, the table is actually made up of old stair treads. And so I believe since I didn't, since I didn't talk to you before I did it, I, um, my husband and I, we used, we went through, I can't tell you how many sanding pads. Millions. The paint off. Yeah. And it was the most awful experience. I kept thinking in the back of my head, I'm like, why is the paint behaving so strange? Strangely, it's not because it got heated up. Because it's melting. Yes, it makes sense. It reliquified. Re- it definitely did. Now yeah. I'm looking back on it. But you go old school, like with this kind of this this hide. And to be um, 100 honest, I work with hide. So um, I've been working with them for years. Um, it <laughs> to be 100 honest, because I was lying before. um it's it's great because it does all this so if you use a chemical stripper which i've done it turns it to goop and then the goop all has to go someplace right it's a nightmare it's ghastly so um uh this is a good tip it is I mean, it's that very Texas saying, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like some tools just ain't broke. And they're as, as they're as good as the day they were invented and they're better and more efficient and simpler to fix. They won't break. Sometimes old school really is the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll take you on a segue then. One moment, please. Actually, this is perfect because we came here together to talk about tools anyway. <laughs> and so now what's what's the next tool you got for us mark well you're talking old school right nothing changes if sure. it ain't broke don't fix it what's the one tool that everyone thinks of when they think of the hammer. that's right the hammer the hammer so talk to me about hammers well i'll give you a couple of things that uh i think about when i buy a hammer and some of the advances in hammers. You can't tell from there, but that hammerhead is titanium. Ah, so it's lightweight. It's lightweight, exactly. Because it it hits, so this is a framing style hammer. Okay. You see the curve on this? So framing style hammer, you can tell because, is it usually a certain length, the handle? It's good, everything about it's going to be bigger. Okay. And we're talking about rough framing I, for our listeners who are not able to see it's um, and rough framing also just for our listeners in case they don't know that's the sort of the wood skeleton of your home that's the actual structure of it so that's before any all the finished materials go up on it so frame rough framing is what you don't see and what you do see in terms of the woodwork in your home when everything's done that's called finished carpentry so that's not what this hammer is for it can be. Well, it can be. Okay. It can be. And I use it as a generalist hammer. So I'm holding okay. up the hammer face to the camera. And you can see that it's smooth. Watch, I'll smash my camera. 
<laughs> you can see that it's smooth face. So I can tap in because it only weighs 12 ounces. I can tap in a finish nail. Okay. With this. Um, if I wanted to, I mean, I all used nail guns, so right. I'm not a driving nail anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right, but so that is your framing hammer. Now, why do you like it as your framing hammer? Well, I, it's my everything hammer. Your everything hammer. And there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, the main reason is because I use a hammer mostly to take things apart. So I'll put this up to the camera again. And the cl- if you'll notice the claw of the hammer is quite straight Mm -hmm. as compared to say a curved claw hammer. Right. I don't know what curved claw hammers are for. (laughs) (laughs) And to be totally inside baseball, the curve of the hammers claw is called it's fetch. Like dog goes to fetch the bone. Uh, I see. And the reason for a straight one is if my hand is the wall, I realize this is a podcast but if my hand is the wall and I have a straight fetch, I can go in and get behind a piece of trim or your door casing behind you, get in behind it and pry it off. Right. It's essentially you get more leverage quickly to pull things off. You can just get access and just get right. it in. If this is curved, I can't, I can't get it in there. I see. So it's, so now I'm going to go on one of my rants about TV. All right, let's hear it. Despite the fact that you see everyone on television with a sledgehammer, right? And I'm not, I can't be making this up, but every one of them, they're all good people. I know 90% of them, you know, some TV producer makes them do that. The last place a sledgehammer should be inside your house. Hmm. Not only is it the wrong tool, no one can sustain swinging one for more than two minutes. It's true. And the way to take a house apart is the reverse of the way it was put together. Mm. You pick it apart. You don't need to smash it. Does anything need to be smashed? On a re- Yes. Okay, what needs to be smashed? So there are a few exceptions to the sledgehammer and the house routine. Um, I just posted a video on, uh, is it up yet? It will, maybe by the time you get this up, it'll be up. Um, we did a perimeter drain at our house. Okay. So perimeter drain is a, a pipe inside the basement floor. You have to break up the basement floor, dig a trench. It's for wet basements. Yes. An old house. I mean, I know you know what it is, but um, why well, to break up the basement floor? The slab was thin because it's an old cheap house. And a jackhammer actually would have been more work. So I busted it with a sledgehammer. And the other thing that might um, curl people's hair (laughs) is if you have an old house and a cast iron tub that needs to go. Ah, yes. It won't get out the door or it's too heavy or something. So you take a million drop cloths, put them on the floor. Then you take a couple drop cloths and put it over the tub and break it. What about picking apart masonry? Like say you have say you no longer want that chimney or you're doing an extension and then there's a brick base around the old porch and you want to get rid of it. Um, that where you take that on a case by case. Okay. Because you get block or brick like that. Sometimes it's easier to pick it apart. 
Okay. Blunt force trauma is you don't need it. You, you don't really need it for most things around the house. All right. So besides that handy, not handy, besides your general hammer that you use for everything, what are some other... So someone is redoing their home for the very first time. They don't have tools. If they do, maybe they're cheap. You know, it's just a picked picked out sort of pick and mess sort of collection of tools. What... Give me like a very core collection, like maybe say top five tools of that you should have. And like, those are the ones that are really worth investing in. Sure, sure. Uh, I answer this question with one caveat. I can pick, I can pick five, but you need to have the basic hand tools. Tape measure, pencil. Yes. Uh, square like this, the tool pouch stuff. Yes. Um, beyond that, let's try this one. This is an impact driver. Okay, impact driver. Impact. Technically, it's a pulse driver because it's it it's quiet. There's hydraulic fluid in there. Okay. Like if you ever watch Homes on Homes, um, yes. the tools they use, it's an impact driver. They're loud. This is quiet. Anyway. Okay. One of those, um, a miter saw, a table saw. A jigsaw, and I would say a compressor and a nailer of some sort. Okay. A so those are top kit. five power tools. Yeah, I'm cheating. A compressor kit that has everything you need in it. Okay. <laughs> so when someone goes to Home Depot, And I'm sure, I mean, I feel this way. You walk in and then the amount of tools and the variety and the price points, it's kind of, it's overwhelming. And so how, and you could research for months on all of those. Mm -hmm. So what are some of like the, um, what should we look for when we're looking for quality? First ask yourself, Frequency of use. Okay. So are you going to be like making furniture on the weekends? Are you really remodeling a whole house? Or is this coming out of the drawer every six months to, you know, do whatever? Um, if it's only coming out of the drawer every six months, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. It, the only nuance you're looking for is on and off. Right. But if you're using it every weekend, what I like to do is to go to the store. First, I make a financial decision. Mm -hmm. And I look at my budget and I look at how much things cost. And then I try to make a a back of the envelope determination to buy as much tool as I can for the money I have. Right. The minute you go cheap is you're you're buying problems. You're you're buying problems because it's inaccurate. It's hard to use. Right. There's some pain in the butt about it. Now, if that's all you can afford... Buy that one. But if you can bang it up a notch, do that. Because what will happen is you'll get a better tool. And then when you're using it, you can focus on using the tool that does what it does well instead of using the tool, not knowing what to do, and the tool's a pain. Right. 
<laughs> I love that saying you're buying problems because I mean, so many times, I mean, just with this general industry, general project, if you go, if you always just go the cheapest route, at some point you will buy a problem instead of putting money towards a solution. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not to say the other, it's not to say go just wildly spend money. Of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, Hey, I have a million dollars. I just buy the top of the line, everything. I don't, I don't because that's, I can't. So, but when I do make a purchase or recommend to people to make a purchase, the other thing I do is say, go and to the store and touch the thing. Mm. Like you can research a miter saw online all day long. Can't tell how it feels. Right. So sometimes there's a little, like rigids have a little trigger on them. I've got an alarm going off somewhere. (laughs) I'm classy. Full (laughs) class. Um, I think my camera just shut off. Oh, it did. I can see that. So when you go to the store and then there's, would you, would you say as a rule of thumb to never buy the cheapest model then? Yeah. Okay. why Why not? That's a fair rule of thumb. So you try and see if you can go a step or two up. Yes, correct. So when you go a step or two up, what are the typical, so that, um, that impulse driver that you had, like what are the typical step ups that make it worth, you know, buying two, three tiers up instead of just the base model? The stuff you're going to use all the time. The, the core stuff. Right. No, I'm saying, but like, say for that, just to give an example of that particular tool for the impact driver, not the impact driver, but either one. Yeah. Impact with the impulse. Instead of buying the base model, when you go up like one or two levels in terms of what you're buying in terms of the model, what are the, what do those models give you that the base model doesn't? There's a lot of parity in the impact drivers. There's, so you're, you've got your DIY category here. There's a lot of parity. Um, you're going to get, when you get into the higher tier impact drivers, you're gonna, I know it's little things. So a higher tier impact driver is going to have a bit on it, a bit holder, how do I say this? There, there are numbers involved. So now I'm confused. <laughs> so this part here, and I'm pointing to the bit holder, the place that, you know, where you put the thing that drives the screw into the tool. Correct. There are three kinds of those. The, the first kind is what I call a two-step. Okay. So that means you have to pull the collar out, like mm-hmm. I'm doing here, put the bit... One moment, please. <laughs> Put the bit in and let the collar go. Not a big deal. Takes a second. Whatever. Right. Then there's the two-step. No, there's the two-step. Then there's the one-step. The one-step, you don't have to move the collar. You just put the... Now i got to readjust it. You just put the piece in. Like that. If you're doing DIY on the weekends, maybe who cares? If you're doing this all the time. All day, every day. All day, every day. That matters. And then there's this one. It, 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 it ejects the bit. Okay. And that's a good that, I'll try to do it this way. 
So why would you want that? If you just drilled a hole with a paddle bit or used a hole saw, it's going to be hot. Ah, this is true. Yeah. So you just eject it and put it on, the, you know, elsewhere. Right. Workbench or whatever. But it's so not it's a neat little thing. And, it's, and some of that nuancey stuff isn't necessary for DIY stuff. But I think the basics are buy as, buy as many good basics as you can. Okay. So when you say you're helping a friend or like a new acquaintance DIY, they're new at it. You go to their um, project site, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Is there sort of a typical tool or something that you see beginners overbuy? Like, it's like you didn't need this. Like you probably should have better spent your money on this. So something that um, inexperienced people tend to invest in that's maybe not, you know, maybe being a beginner isn't the right point to invest in it. You know, I don't think I've seen that one. Okay. I don't. No, I usually go in and say, my God, coil up your extension cords. You don't just stuff it in a bucket. (laughs) Well said. Well said. Well, that's good to know then. As long as we're going with the basic tools, it's hard to overinvest. It's hard to overinvest. Like you can can get super high-end stuff, but... once you get into the to the Makita, DeWalt, Rigid, Milwaukee, mm-hmm. Hitachi, which is now Metabo, HPS, the name changed. Once you get into that strata of tools, again, there's a lot of parity. So you're 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 negotiating features in a very small space. Got it. Like, like they're all good. Right. You know? So it's, it's, get an Alexis and Infinity, and right. they're all nice cars. Right. So in some ways, it's helpful for a beginner because you're not going to go that wrong. It's it seems like a very it's a matter of almost flavor at that point if they're very similar products. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. All right. So once we get these tools, just let's just run with the um, the impact driver. I, I remember talking to you earlier and you mentioned that so many times you see people using these tools and they're using them wrong. Yes. So walk me through with the impact driver. What is, what are the common things that you see people doing wrong and what should we be doing instead? Well, I can share with you that I just put a video up and this one is up compared to the other one. Which I oh, wonderful. <laughs> About how to drive a screw. Yes. It's you watch homes on homes or this old house and those guys are ripping them in and and it seems like it's easier than it really is. And the reason I made the video is because I've never, it's taken me basically my entire career to find a way to explain it (laughs) because it's, it's difficult to articulate what to do. So I have a screw right here. And for those watching, uh, and they're not watching my camera, my memory's full. (laughs) So they're watching yours. The, so obviously that's the screw. Right. That's the driver tip. So the driver tip is this little part that goes in here. And this is the driver bit. 
Right. Which is this thing that goes into the tool, and then there's the tool. Essentially, they all have to be in a straight line in order for this to go into the wood. What the main thing that gets lost in DIY is, and I'll try to show you this, between the screw and the driver tip is a 360-degree hinge point. Correct. It's like your arm and your shoulder. Exactly. Yes. It's like a ball, it's like a ball and socket joint because that screw can sort of can't in any number of directions. 360 degrees. Exactly. So if you're on a ladder, you're reaching down, you're, you know, you're doing whatever, and this just gets off a little tiny bit, and especially if you're using Phillips head screws. So the black screws we all buy. Um, the, the dirty little secret for those is that Philip, the Phillips head was designed for factories. So oh. like building airplanes and stuff, they're literally designed for the driver tip to cam out. They're designed to slip after there's a certain amount of force on them. Right. So if you're trying to whale it into a 200 year old Douglas fir stud to put a block in, you're doomed. <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> and then you've got this working against you. And I've right. seen guys do it building stuff in their backyard or at events. So the other thing that happens is um, you got your basic run-of-the-mill screw and the tip isn't very sharp. And if you hit a piece of hard wood fiber, say in a deck board to put down a, uh, a piece of decking, people, I'll use my hand to do this, so to illustrate this. People will kind of gingerly put the screw head down because they don't know this hinge point thing's going on. Right. So they're ginger about that. And then they start to screw the screw in and it's sitting on a piece of wood fiber that's super dense. Right. It doesn't go. So the tips the screw over, tips this over. Right. There are two solutions to that. One is to stab the screw in a little bit. Mm, got it. So that gets a little tiny thread going. Right. And then it'll, it'll go, it'll auger itself in. Right. Um, the other thing is to use good screws. Okay. And this screw I'm showing you, see how there's sort of a star? Shape? Yes. That's called a T-star plus, and the company's called SPAX, S-P-A-X. They're one screw to rule them all. Okay. They're awesome. And it seemed like that impression of that star was much deeper than an average Phillips head. Yes. It seemed like you could get more tooth in there. And so There's that more you surface get more... area. Yes. Call your sixth grade biology teacher to talk about surface area. Okay. <laughs> my, my high school biology teacher basically thought the world operated, you know, the successful species operated because they had more surface area. Like we have more surface area in our brains than tigers. And he had a million of them and I'd never forget it. I don't know what the examples were, but Mr. McClellan, if you're still alive, <laughs> your, your surface area thing stuck with me. There's way more surface area in that. And you can also do this. It sticks there. Yeah. So I cannot, 
all the things that you need three hands for, <laughs> you know, you can kind of do the positioning and moving around that you need to do. So the actual screw that you use matters. Every single part of the process matters to the craft. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Because a lot of times, um, and I'm going to try to not go too far off the reservation. A lot of times it's not the big thing people don't understand. It's the million little things between start and stop that they don't understand. Right. And that's where you get hung up. Right. So as someone who is self-taught, you know, you didn't, you didn't go through like a tradesman program where, you know, sort of the formalized training, how, how did you teach yourself all these things? So how can, basically, how can we also be good self-taught carpenters? Is there a method to your madness? Are there certain questions that you ask yourself or that certain things on the job site that trigger you to be like, all right, this isn't right. There should be a better way of doing this. Like what, what was that process of self-improvement in terms of all of, of the crafts of what you do? Um, I started reading some magazines. Um, Fine Home Building is a good one. Excellent magazine, yes. Excellent magazine. The people there are just jacked up consummate pros. They are. As an architect, and I come across... So because there are a million details in different ways... There's a million ways to skin a cat. Yeah. So if I come across something and I need to research a good detail... When yeah. I find a fine home building detail and they're always drawn beautifully, it's good. Yes. You have, our, you, have our, you have the professional's blessing to go and use those details and to follow all their advice. Yes, for sure. They're, they're all, these guys sharpen their low angle block plane irons every night. So they're, <laughs> that's, that's a jestful way of saying that they care about what they do. Definitely. And giving the best possible information. I know that firsthand. I mean, I write for Fine Home. So, oh, um, cool. Uh, or I have. I don't know if they'll talk to me anymore. But anyway. <laughs> um, so, just, so you you read a lot of magazines. What other things did you do to sort of improve your knowledge and craft? Failed miserably. Um, I got a book that was old when I got it called Modern Carpentry, which is fantastic. And it shows you, it showed me everything that I needed to do. Mm-hmm. So grab a book with pages um, and also be mindful of YouTube. As much as I like to say, you know, go to my YouTube channel and subscribe to it. Some of the videos there are, I mean, they're great. There's lots of very informative things, but they can't possibly show everything. Right. So if you watch that video on how to build a deck, on YouTube, you're not getting it all. Right. So don't think because you watched it 10 times, you, you got it. There's still a million little details right. that are going to show up in real life. Um, and you got to be ready for that. So that, I mean, I, I learned by failing a lot and having to fail because it wasn't a hobby for me. It was my job. So, and I was committed to the customers and all of that. So I had motivation beyond, Hey, let's do this on the weekend. Right. I think, um, 
it does sound old fashioned, but books are great. They really are. And some actually some in my training as an architect, one of the books that I often refer to was it's called the architectural graphic standards. Uh-huh. And um, to really, I mean, today with the cavity construction, which means that instead of solid masonry walls that you see built today, like, you know, we're <clears throat> like this old Victorian home that I'm in that's is three bricks deep, all these outside walls. Mm-hmm. Today, if you see a new brick building go up, it's one wife of brick, mm-hmm. a little bit of airspace, and then that stud space. Yeah. So since there's a cavity between that brick and that stud, this is called, it's called cavity wall construction. Uh-huh. But uh, to learn, and then once you got there, you have all sorts of crazy moisture management details, insulation, where the vapor barrier goes, that depends on your climate. And so it got a lot of more building science So yeah. pre all of that, one of the books that I used a lot just to understand this material meets this material this way is the 1932 edition of the Architectural Graphic Standards, because it was before any of that came in there and it was just simple and elegant, beautiful drawings about how a building goes together. And so I completely agree with Mark in terms of it is worth taking the time to, you know, go to your library or just go dust off some old books and you'll find some beautiful old details and lessons and just a really great resource that was um, published in a time where I think information had to be a bit more vetted because it wasn't self-published like YouTube. Yeah. Sometimes going to these um, professional publications such as Fine Home Building, that's probably a better place to start than just YouTube, no matter how many subscribers that person has. I would agree because it, with Fine Home Building, for example, I know it's going through three or four people who know which end of the tool the nail comes out of. Exactly. Everything about the tool and the hose and the conditions and the building science, which is a thing that DIY almost will, unless you try to maybe finish your basement, it's not something that you need to know about. Right. It's, I completely agree with you, except with the one caveat of if you're redoing your attic or you're doing something with insulation, maybe you should just look it up a little bit. Yeah, the attic's another good one. Exactly. exactly. So if you pack your rafter base full of insulation, um, you've just created a mold farm. Exactly. (laughs) Problem. (laughs) So yeah, uh, that's a better way to put it. If you're doing anything with insulation, double check what you're doing. Yes. By the way, good DIY project that you don't need any real background knowledge for, um, especially in old houses, is um, in old houses with basements. So they are notoriously uninsulated. Mm -hmm. Um, So go down your basement. If it's not finished, look up. You'll see your floor joists. And then you'll see the top of the foundation wall. And then if you can see wood at the top of your foundation, like if you can see the inside of your outside wall, mm-hmm. so the, you know that's the band joist for the house. Yeah. That's called the band joist. If that cavity is uninsulated, you're just, it's, you're made to make your floors cold. So cold. So cold. So, so cold. I think actually I was reading about that and I think, 
anywhere between 30 and 40% of your thermal heat loss can occur where your, where the wood will meet the foundation wall. You're kidding me. It's, I mean, it's, um, I think it, of course it depends on how the grade, AKA the dirt meets the house. And then yeah. how is, do you, there's a million different variations if you have a brick still, if you don't, but there, that is a major spot for, yeah. and also because modern day construction too, you'll need a, um, a thermal sill sealer between sill sealer, yes. Between, yes. So you'll have the top of the foundation wall. You'll see that little goo They're or whatever. The, you know, blue. And then they'll put the sill plate on it, which is then, you know, anchored to your foundation wall. But so anyway, so all those tiny little things matter. So if you're doing, so you can insulate from the inside. That is it. You're right. That is a great DIY project and you will get a lot of bang for your buck because you lose a lot of heat there. Immediately. Yeah. It's inexpensive. Anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. And the, the way that there are two ways you can do it. First of all, um, rocks, rock wool until January, it was rocks wool, but now it's rock wool. It's stone wool insulation. And if you haven't used it, it's the best insulation you've never heard of. It's fantastic. Um, get a couple bags of rock. Well, just get one and see where it takes you, but get a bag of rock wool. You cut it with a bread knife it cuts like really soft wood. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you, so let's just say you've got two by 10 joists, cut a piece 11 inches and just fit it right in there. Yeah. Or you can go a different route, fit one in there and then take a piece two feet long and put it in behind it. So you've got it, you've got literally two feet of insulation. Oh, I see. Put it in the long way. Got it. You know, so it'll fill the entire joist bag that right. far. And it costs nothing. It's just, it's practically, it will pay for itself. It will. Yeah. It definitely, especially if you, I mean, you're in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. I'm in cool. Chicago. These yeah. winters are long. <laughs> and they will, this, this project will definitely pay for itself. Yeah. Yeah, and no one knows to do it. No, it's actually, I've always found it hard to convince. It's not hard. It's not the most fun conversation to have with clients when you say, look, I know you want this really pretty thing called X. You should spend that $10,000 redoing your insulation. They're like, what? But it pays off. Insulation's not pretty. No. Feels good, though. (laughs) It does. Everyone wants a warm, energy-efficient house. I, well, if you want to t- dance around the edge of this rabbit hole, I'll jump in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just did a, and I'm waiting to post this video. It'll eventually be up. On the, We did a Schluter Dietrich heat warm floor system in our basement. Okay. So a heated floor. It's night and day warm floor warm floor yes yes those are amazing yes this is an electric system Mm -hmm. it's a very flat mat uh schluter's ditra and the space still needs to be conditioned in the winter but barely barely because the because it's essentially so you go in a basement and 
the first three feet up, the floor is always 54 degrees, mm-hmm. whether or not you have a heated system or not, because the ground is 54 degrees, eight feet down. So even if you have, you know, some giant, super awesome heating system blowing air into your basement or radiators, the floor is still 54 degrees. Can't change it. Well, you can with this teacher heat system. Oh, it was, I was laying down on the floor. <laughs> yes, no. My old apartment had radiant floor heat in oh, the country. Like hydronic? Oh, it was, a, it was a very nondescript 1950s building. But man, these 1950s building that had radiant heat in the floors, it's the most amazing thing in the winter to wake up. Your floors, your feet hit the floor and the floor is warm. Yeah. When you get out of the showers that cold winter morning and the, 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 your tiles are warm. Oh, my yeah. God. It's the best thing in the world. And also, FYI, radiant heat is something I could talk about for a very long time because it's probably one of the most underestimated things in terms of comfort in your home because forced air heat simply feeds forced heated air into your home. Mm-hmm. Radiant heat it's radiant. And so literally you have to think of the heat being these little energy packets that go through the air and then they hit an object like furniture, your walls, your floor. And then that energy enters into the objects. And so the objects warm up. And so that's why when you open the door, you open a window, you know, kids are running inside and out, you lose air, but it's not the air in your home that's warm. It's the objects that are warm. Yeah, radiant heat heats things. Radiant heat is amazing, and then the um, it's called the it's called the mean radiant temperature, the MRT. I'm getting so deep. No, you're all the way in the rabbit hole. I know, I'm, I'm all the way in, but I'm, just, I'm gonna have to throw you a lifeline. I know, but just one more sentence. But it's the no, mean I'm, radiant. I'm having them all. <laughs> but it's the mean radiant heat that is the greatest indicator or the the greatest determinator of physical comfort in your home. So that's my. <laughs> Those are my 10 million cents about radiant heat and why it's great. And I understand those systems are very expensive, but if you have an old home and yeah. has radiant heat, for the love of God, I please, I beg you, keep it. Don't rip it out and replace it with forced air. Keep the radiant heat and it's cheaper. It's warmer. It's more comfortable. It's quiet. God, I just love them. Okay. hundred <laughs> percent agree. hundred percent. All right. So that was a far off cry from, um, Tools. So we've actually had a very large ranging, wide ranging discussion today on all things having to do with why we're in this industry, how we got into it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, thank you so much for your time, Mark. This has been such a fun conversation. And I know you have so many more tips to share with our audience. And so we will definitely have you back on for, in one, for another uh, wide ranging discussion. Oh, I love it. We'll talk about Voldemar Rybczynski. And I'll tell you one that I want to bring up with you next time we chat. Excellent. Sounds great. Uh, you might know this guy. He's got a funny name, too. Oh, I can't think of it. He's an architect at Penn, and he's written a million books. And one of the greatest books I've ever read is his book called One Good Turn. Is he the urbanist? I don't know. He's with... We might be thinking of the same guy. I think he's Polish. Yes. It's all consonants. It's 50,000 consonants. Yes, I have two of his books in my office. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, we can talk about one good turn and why the screw is the what he considered to be the invention of the millennium at the turn of the 21st century. Wow. Yes, let's talk. Okay, done. All right. Thanks, everyone. And Mark, thank you so much for having, for coming on. And we will um, talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right, take care. If you're planning a renovation or you're moving into your first new home, then the Akiva Toolkit could be the solution you need. With its easy-to-use package of 10 documents, you are able to manage time, budget, and the communication between your builders and you to ensure the project is complete to satisfaction first time round. The Akiva Toolkit saves you money and time. It's for the first-time renovator and the renovator that wants to do things better the second time round. It's a fraction of the cost compared to paying for mistakes or repeating work that's already done. Go to akivatoolkit.com and get your project off to a perfect start today.